Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Coming up on this edition of the TV Blackbox podcast 101 series, we speak to theatre and television gold buggy winner and Australian legend, John Wood. So grab a cup of tea and a scrumptious coffee scroll and find out why so many Australians love this man and why Miss Bullen does not. This is TV Black Box, bringing you the inside goss from the TV industry. Hello everyone and welcome to episode two of the TV Black Box one-on-one podcast. I'm Aaron Ryan. Joining me for this edition, everyone's favourite television magistrate and police sergeant, but a man with a massive presence in the theatre scene. He has written a memoir, and it's called How I Clawed My Way to the Middle, and it's out now at all good bookshops for those over 50, and on Audible for those under 50 through Amazon. Thank you for joining us at TV Black Box, John Wood. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Firstly, John, it would be remiss of me not to ask on how you're travelling at the moment, being from Victoria and currently in a sort of lockdown situation. How is your family doing? Well, we're fine. Um, we're, uh, you know, we live in the Yarra Valley on a small farm, and uh, so it's not difficult to isolate. And, in fact, you know, like, you know, I've seen anybody from the business since prior to Easter when we were cancelled in Sydney with the uh, the David Williamson's last play, Crunch Time, that uh, cancelled due to COVID and we didn't finish the season at the Ensemble and we didn't get to go to Noosa where David lives. And, you know, also the Wizard of Oz was cancelled, which we were supposed to be bringing to Perth. It's a, it was an arena production and... Uh, but it had 800 kids in it, and we were playing to audiences of about six to 8,000. So wow. uh, that went the way of uh, everything else in this uh, torrid and unusual time. And I guess you had to cope with the, in terms of loss of work, because I mean, the, this pandemic is, I mean, it's put everyone uh, out of work, but particularly tourists and arts uh, industries, so they've basically been brought to their knees, haven't they? The arts industry, certainly the theatre industry, is non-existent at the moment, um, and no theatre can afford to open up and play to, you know, like social distanced, socially distanced uh, audiences. You know, like theatres rely on houses being full, and they rely on subscribers, and uh, so the subscribers aren't subscribing, and. Uh, and people aren't walking up to the box office because they're not hearing anything about it because there's nothing to hear about. So yeah. it's uh, it's a pretty torrid time for uh, people in my industry. It's uh, horrendous, yeah. I wanted to ask um, an interesting question. Um, if you think you are to the arts industry what Daryl Braithwaite is to the music industry, I mean, he's quite talented, has a range of work, been hugely busy, but people just want him to sing the horses. I mean, you've had a massive career uh, with a massive portion of being in the theatre, yet I suppose most people want to ask you about Tom Croydon or Maggie Doyle or Blue Healers. Is that frustrating for you? Or? Oh, it's... Um, no, not really. I mean, that's what... Um, I mean, that's how I became, you know, like a a major celebrity, I suppose, with with Blue Heelers, and uh, I was a minor celebrity after Rafferty's Rules, and, uh, like, being a celebrity is a very strange, strange state of affairs. I mean, it's not... Uh, 
But, you know, it's understandable that people always want to know about, especially Blue Heelers, because uh, Lisa was such a an iconic and loved figure. She would have been, you know, like Australia's sweetheart, really. And, um, you know, so she, she was wonderful. And, uh, you know, I loved working with her and I loved working with all the others on the show, too. It was... Uh, but, you know, it's, it's understandable, particularly since the television is in the corner of most people's living rooms, if not, you know, if not their, um, their home theatre. And, you know, like, it's... You've been in their house, you know. Like, I, I was, you know, every, every year for 12 years, yeah. the 511 episodes, I was in the corner of their living room. So they sort of feel... Generally, they feel like that you're part of the family, part of the furniture, yeah. and they, you know, they, they just assume that they know you because you've spent so much time with them. So it's a, uh, it's a weird and wonderful thing, uh, television. That uh, it makes you uh, not just a household name, but a piece of the household furniture. Yeah. Um, your, your book, you're, you're very forthright in the book with your opinions and reflections and have a lot of praise for a number of people, yet almost none for yourself. Um, some quotes from the book here. In referring to yourself, you say you are old and crappy and uninteresting. On acting, you say, I, I don't have the faintest idea about the subject. You call yourself a boring old fart. On a particular show, you stated, I'm not sure I did the show any justice, and I'm sure there's a few old ham references in the book. And you say your directing is bad, your writing is bad, your acting is bad. I guess the question is, <laughs> you, you've made a career out of your out of your passion and adored by the public. So why are you so hard on yourself? Oh, uh, look, I don't know. I don't. I don't. Um, I don't. I don't have. Uh, I don't have that high an uh, opinion of my acting. I mean, it's not, and it's not something that I. I watch. You know, I haven't. Uh, I very rarely watch myself back on screen when it goes to air I'm, and in fact you know I, most often when Blue Healers was on I was uh, at opening nights of the theatre or something like that and uh, uh, and I also I did uh, the club for you know a, a lot of the time I was actually performing in David Williamson's play The Club whilst I was working on Blue Healers so I didn't get to see a lot of it I don't really have an opinion of my acting, and you know, like and it's when you when you list it all together the way you just have, it, it sounds like I have no opinion of myself whatsoever. But look, I think I'm all right. I'm passable, and uh, and I, um, you know, I'm, I reckon I'm good at what I do. Um, so you know, but I don't feel like a. I don't feel like I'm a world-class, world-beating performer. You know, there's there's all sorts of uh, reasons for that. Uh, you know, like I called the book How I Poured My Way to the Middle because I thought it was a funny line, but it wasn't invented by me. It was invented by a mate named Ron Challoner. And um, I thought that it's funny and it's ironic and it just about sums up my career i uh, i don't think i don't think anybody in australia gets much past the middle uh you know if you if you're uh, if you're going to get to the top you've got to go to the uk or hollywood and uh, you know so it's you know like i don't feel i don't feel cheated or hard done by i'm quite happy with where i've ended up and uh except for the fact that I'm now quite old and I have rheumatoid arthritis, so getting around is not that easy. But, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm sort of at a point where I don't know whether I'm fit enough to do a big stage production anymore, but, uh, but I certainly have no... I have no... You know, I'm not, not that down on myself that I don't recognise that I have done some good work over the years and, you know, and I've also done some bad work, you know, but that's par for the course. Everybody in the business is like that. There are some things they'd rather forget and uh, <laughs> some things they'd prefer people remembered the, uh, rather than others. But, uh, 
No, I, I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm not that self-effacing or down on myself. But, uh, but you know, I, I haven't done anything that nobody else has done, and I haven't done anything that nobody else could have done. You know, like there's always, uh, you know, someone else that can do the job as well as you with a slightly different perspective. And, uh, you know, I, I don't get too far ahead of myself and I hopefully don't get too far behind myself either. Um, you spoke in there about your stage career and um, things that you've been involved with. A lot of people don't know you had a massive stage career before Rafferty's Rules and Blue Healers. In the book, you say theatre for you is what heroin is like for an addict. Uh, there is an addiction there and you always look for the next hit. Tell me what the passion is for theatre specifically, because you refer to it only in theatre and not holistically in acting. Well, the theatre is uh, a wonderful... Uh a wonderful place of communion, you know, and there's, you know, there's, there are things about the theatre that are very similar to the church or the law, you know, like you know, the courtroom. Um, it, you know, like when, when it works really well, um, working, acting in a theatre is, is just so exhilarating and you know you know there are moments when you uh, are so in the zone that you're um you know that you're completely at like at one with the audience you know you're all you all seem to be taking the same breath at the same time and the the, the great thing about theater is it's a media is um you know the fact that you tell a joke or you say something funny or something awful and the audience reacts right then, bang, and uh, oh. and it's working. It's working for you and the audience, and it's a shared experience that, uh, I mean, on television, uh, you know, the shared experience is probably between the people that make the show, you know, the actors and the crew. They have the shared experience of creating it, and that goes out on air, and the audience is sort of allowed into it, but it's... It's not the same experience that you have in a in a theatre full of people. It's uh, you know, and it can never be the same. I guess someone that didn't uh, initially, uh, I guess, believe in that passion. Your dad referred to the theatre and your potential career in acting as a bloody sissy sport. Was that ignorance about the arts, or just a view of a different time where everyone just had to, had to have a nine to five job to get by? Well, I think, you know, like nobody nobody that I knew as I was growing up knew how to become an actor. Mm. You know, it was something beyond most people. And, you know, like I think the arts generally for for many people, I would imagine that people like Sidney Nolan and a whole raft of other people that went before me would have had similar difficulties in convincing their parents and friends that uh, what they were doing was legitimate, you know. Um, yeah. It was an, a legitimate avenue to pursue. And uh, But, you know, the arts, you know, the, the theatre, I mean, the only person anybody had ever heard of when I was a kid, apart from the really famous people like Laurence Olivier, were, you know, and the film stars, the big golden years of Hollywood stars, the only person anybody had heard of in my milieu was Frank Thring. And uh, they all said, you know, they all just go, oh, he's just, he's just a poof. And, uh, mm. and um, therefore, all actors are poofs. And when I showed any interest in doing it, uh, that's how I was r referred to constantly. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I think at the time, most of the people that were calling me a poof, my fellow students and myself, had no idea what they were talking about. You know, they didn't know what what it was, what homosexuality was. I don't think any of us ever knew anybody that was homosexual, you know, either out of the closet or hidden away. I mean, you know, like it was it was a foreign country. It was a whole different world. And uh, I remember at the time I was, I used to play football as all kids of 
my generation living in Melbourne did. And um, and I thought, well, you know, the football jocks, that's how they, they wrote me off as worthless. And uh, I thought, well, if that's the way you feel, I'm not going to take any interest in football again. And I... I stopped playing and I didn't I didn't go to the football again until 1980 1981 oh. and uh, and then got hooked on it again of course but um but I stayed away from it because of their attitude to the to the theater and the ironic thing of course now is that just about every radio station has footballers as mm. part of their their crew, their, you know, they, you know, the Fev and Jonathan Brown, are, yeah. you know, they're all on the radio now, and they they all became TV presenters. J- Jason Dunstall, Dermot, you know, and I'm Barry for Hawthorne. So, you know, there are all these people who were in the, the footy team I followed all ended up on TV, mm. and basically are doing better at it than uh, people like me did, you know. So. Well, in the same vein uh, sort of question, you, you worked with your dad in the abattoir um, making a living to finance your dream career, I guess. With your description of the book, it seems a whole different world compared to today where we've got political correctness and one comment on Twitter can cost you a job. Was it really tough working there or, or was it just part of the times in that era of Victoria? I think it was just a part of the times, you know. There was no such thing as political correctness and... Uh... And people's language, I hated the way men, when they got together, talked about women. And uh, I just found it, I couldn't believe that they would say stuff like they said about women who were their wives or their daughters, you know. And it's, um, you know, I always found it, like, I'm not... I'm not a mad, keen, politically correct person, but... um, I think, you know, I think the changes that have been made in the last few years are essential. And as I said, I couldn't stand those sort of conversations back when I was at school and uh, and I couldn't stand it when I got into the workforce, you know. The, the attitude was ridiculous and vile. So. So, so knowing that the times were different back then, what's your thoughts on... on- cancel culture now, you know, where we have certain episodes of shows from the past that are pulled from release today, but even though they might have aired 10, 20 or 30 years ago, do you, do you think that's right? the right thing to be pulling episodes from 20 years ago or realise that that was the time and, and you know, still release them? Look, I, I don't... Uh, I've n- not even really thought about it, but, you know, like just quickly thinking about it now, it seems uh, that's as ridiculous as Muslims destroying Buddhas, you know, like, yeah. you know, it's, it's the same thing that drives it, you know, well, they're not right, that's not right, that's not our religion, that's not the way we do things, so get rid of it. And that's, I think that's uh, an outrage against, uh, you know, like the history of Western civilization, or the history of civilization generally. And, uh, I mean, and just because you excise it from a movie doesn't make it go away. And, you know, like, I mean, people are down on Gone with the Wind at the moment, but, yeah. you know, the, the other, you know, the thing, Paddy McDaniels, who, you know, is the main, you know, the main people, main person people are, seemingly protecting she won an academy award for her performance in that film yeah and uh you know like i think uh i think that you know would be as belittling to her as um what she supposedly did in the movie the, the subjugation of her of her african-american background to become a mammy and uh you know, but yeah, that's what the world was like. You know, God, it was. That's what it was like, and uh, and I think we have to accept that and move on. You know, accept it, take it as you know, like it's, it's like, oh, you know, Howard and the black armband 
view yeah. of history, you know, like we have to acknowledge it and thank Christ we did, you know, that Rudd made the the apology that Howard should have made years before and uh, it's... Um, and not just Howard, you know, yeah. like many. There were many prime ministers that had the opportunity and didn't do it. And uh, That's right. You know, but it's, uh, you know, like I, I don't see, you know, you know, I don't, I'm not even really aware of lots of cancel cultures, but it's, um, I presume it's just getting rid of things we don't like in our past. And uh, it's basically exactly what it is, yeah. Um, and I, you know, like they are part of our development, and I think we have to accept them, uh, apologise for them, and move on. You know, um, but not remove them, not not scrub them out of here. You know, it's like trying to wash um, graffiti off railway walls. You know, it's. Uh, mm. But anyway, I mean, you know, like I, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, I'm not uh, pro or anti the whole thing, you know. I just, uh, I just find it slightly, slightly r ridiculous, you know. Yeah. And I don't mean to, you know, if any of your listeners take offence at that, I don't mean to offend them, but it's, uh, you know, oh, it's just an I am an old strong man, you know. It's a. Uh, no, it's an interesting debate because people do talk about uh, the cancel culture, whereas. Some people understand that some of the, the things that came through in the past weren't appropriate, but it's just whether you then cancel that or whether you learn from it and, and it still becomes part of your history. But it seems that some people want to sort of cancel history. But um, let's go in a different direction. Um, your first television role was in Barrier Reef. Now, I actually watched that the pilot episode on YouTube yesterday. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it's, it's actually up there, the, the pilot episode. It was, it's obviously it was a completely different feel for you from doing theatre. From, and from what can I, what I took from that is that you were not overly thrilled with the experience. What, why was that? Oh, I just found that, you know, it's, uh, it's never... It was the first time I'd worked on, you know, in a film crew or on television, and uh, it was not a... I, I, look, I didn't mind it, but I, you know, like again, there was there was a sort of um, a fairly blokey attitude that I didn't I didn't like particularly, you know. It's, uh, again, and not for the last time, I felt like I was back school listening to the the footy jocks bragging about the size of their dicks, you know. Mm. It's, uh, but um, and you know that you know I, I still find that irritating and annoying and uh, and I don't like it much but you know like by and large I, I was out of my I was out of my element you know <laughs> it was mm. the whole thing was uh, surreal you know I, I I went to Queensland to do it and I'd never been on a plane before that day I, I rode on a on a 727 and then a Fokker Friendship and then a Sikorsky helicopter to get to Hayman Island and you know, so it was a that was a big, exciting day, and uh, and then I spent the next ten days on a on a sailing ship. You know, a, a replica of a sort of a replica of the Endeavour yeah. uh, in the Whitsunday Passage. You know, like on these beautiful pristine waters and blue skies and blazing sun, and you know, and eating. You know, eating film crew meals, and mm. the, the meals for that particular job were, uh, you know, somebody would catch coral trout oh, just wow. before lunch, and then it would be prepared for lunch. And it was, you know, I'd never had fish that fresh or anything, you know, and and I just sort of thought, God, this is idyllic. If, if this is what the film industry's like, I've got it made. But of course, it never it was never the same again. Um, but it's, you know, there there were also people within the show that, um, you know, as I said, were quite blokey. But there was also they they seemed uh, uh, like you know the the competence, the, the ability to do the job wasn't there, mm -hmm. and I found that frustrating, you know. Well, you're and saying... not for the last time. 
after about doing, I think it was seven episodes of Catwalk, you actually said you'd had enough of television. Um, but later in the book, you talk about how much you loved your experiences on Rafferty's Rules and Blue Healers. So why the, the, the love-hate relationship for television? I noticed you loved it and hated it at the same time throughout your career. I um, I didn't like Catwalk because I just didn't like the way it was done, you know. Like, I thought, you know, it was a terrific idea to have something set in a women's magazine, but um, the lack of time was a bit, you know, like I was supposedly a photographer. Well, I, you know, I still don't know the first thing about cameras, <laughs> you know. And, um, you, know, you know, so my... My idea of what a cameraman did or what a fashion photographer did was was all gained from blow up, yeah. uh, you know, as the Antonioni film with David Hemmings, and uh, that was all I knew about photography. And I just I just found it, you know, again there were egos that uh, that got in the way. I thought of the work and. Uh, mm. But, you know, by the same token, there were some really terrific people. You know, it was great to work with somebody of the calibre of June Salter. And, uh, and then, you know, like, basically I got on with everybody else. Um, but I, I just didn't like the way, it, you know, I found the direction very pedestrian. Yeah. And I remember, you know, like there was an episode... Oh no, that was on Rafferty's rules. <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking of something different. Yeah. You obviously. But it was a. Yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say, um, you obviously work with the, the zillion people in the theatre and television industry, and I'm sure actors hate the question, what's it like working with so and so? So I don't want to ask. I want to ask you about four people, but possibly not the ones people ask you most about, like Lisa McHugh or Russell Crowe. So here's my four that I feel reading for the book had an influence on you one way or the other. So first up, I wanted to ask you about Shane Porteous, um, who most Australians know as Dr Terence Elliott in a country practice. Yeah, I worked with Shane... Well, I first saw Shane on stage many years previously in uh, 1970... 1962, uh, playing Pozzo in um, uh, Waiting for Godot, in which... Uh, Max Gillies had played one of the leading roles and uh, I was absolutely knocked out by Max. He was such a great comic actor, uh, a terrific clown, and it was just, you know, it was magical. And Shane was in that, not that I really knew him at the time. And then uh, when I graduated from NIDA, my first year in the business, I spent that year working with Shane and Jane Harders, who'd been at university with him in Queensland. And, uh, and Shane became just a great mate, you know. He was um, he was fantastic and uh, very supportive. And uh, he and his wife uh, had had uh, their first child uh, already by the time we were expecting our first child. And uh, they were, you know, tremendously supportive of Leslie and her pregnancy. And uh, uh, one of my fondest memories is the night of the uh, 1972 election. I was at Shane and Jenny's place in Paddington and uh, and the news came through that Whitlam had been elected, you know, and uh, there were jazz bands playing in the street. You know, there were people playing... You know, there were whole jazz bands marching around the streets of Paddington. The, the joy was just exuberant and uh, exhilarating after 23 years of conservative government. It was uh, extraordinary, and I shared that with Shane and Jenny, and uh, and I, I used to see them occasionally. They they lived up in the the uh, Blue Mountains up near quite close to that big uh, hotel, the big... Oh, I can't remember the name of it now, but um, they lived up there, and I used to get up and see them once in a blue moon. It was a long way out of town, and uh, especially when I was based in Melbourne most of the time and they were up there. But I, um, 
Jenny died about 18 months ago from uh, of emphysema, and uh, mm. Shane, I you know, I think Shane's still fine, but I haven't seen him for I haven't seen him for 20 years, probably or more. You, you mentioned in there, so it's just come to my mind uh, something from the book uh, with the Golf Whitlam thing. Um, you seem to have a knack for something happening on certain dates. What, wasn't the Harold Holt disappearance lined up with something that you did? Sorry, I did. I, I have forgotten. Yeah, what that was. yes, it was. It was um, the, the the day I had my going away party to to go to NIDA. I was at John Ellis's place. John and Lois had a place in Canterbury and. Uh, I remember vividly. I took, you know, I took a a copy of the the record of the day, which was um, the Rolling Stones doing um, their Satanic Majesties, and um, we, uh, uh, you know, while we were there in the course of the going away party, yeah. um, Harold Holt drowned. Uh-huh. Which put a bit of a dampener on things. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. So, next one I wanted to ask you uh, is about Julie Nile, um, who you worked with in theatre, and of course was your co-star in Blue Healers. And for those of you playing at home, Julie was the uh, the owner of the pub, Chris Riley. So tell us about Julie. Julie's fabulous. You know, she's. Um, you know, like we didn't uh, we we didn't know each other terribly well, but we we did get to know each other very well. Uh, last year, about a year ago, we uh, we did a a two hander play called Bakersfield Mist, mm. and uh, we toured. We actually toured to Perth, and we toured uh, everywhere. We toured right around the country. Uh, it was a production Tasmanian Theatre Company, and it was fantastic. It was a a very funny based on a, a true story about a woman who lived in a caravan park in Los Angeles or San Diego and uh, and uh, she bought a painting at a you know like like a garage sale market mm. and somebody told her that it might be a Jackson Pollock oh. and she gets this guy to come out from New York who's an art expert to uh, verify it and uh, and he can't, in in all honesty, verify it as a Pollock, and uh, they fall out, and uh, you know, it's, uh, she misses out on her chance for making a fortune. But uh, we had a wonderful time working on that play. It was a, a terrific play, and uh, mm. Julie's wonderful. She's a terrific woman, and uh, she uh, she too has two children, and. Uh, and you know, like, and she's at that age where, uh, you know, she's going through a period where her parents are ailing and uh, not doing so well, and uh, mm. her husband, whom from whom she's separated, uh, has Parkinson's disease, and oh, wow. uh, but her two girls are, you know, like they're terrific, terrific kids, and they're they're involved in the business, you know, like. Uh, her husband was Richard Moyer, who was a quite a well-known actor, and uh, and the girls have both gone into the business in varying ways, and they're terrific. I mean, you know, um, yeah, they're wonderful. They're great family. They're wonderful people. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So... I guess for the fans of Blue Healers, and I apologise if I don't remember, I actually did watch every episode of Blue Healers, but why did Chris and Tom not ever get together in the end on Blue Healers? I don't think they did from memory. There were some flirtatious things throughout this. It was like, how come they never got together in the end? Well, I don't think, you know, like, I don't think in the end it was possible. I don't think, um, I mean, I think Tom 
on, you know, like had a soft spot for her um, and probably had had for all his life because they grew up together. Mm. But uh, she did have a relationship with um, Damien Walsh Howling's character, yeah. Adam, and I think that would have made it very hard to... Uh, to uh, get involved with her after that. I mean, I said it would have been uh, some sort of animosity and jealousy, I imagine. I mean, it was never, it was never mooted. There was a, there was a, yeah, there was a time there when uh, they thought they might uh, get Tom and, uh, what, Amy, I think the character name was, was Mm. um, Rachel Gordon. Um, But that was sort of, Late, and I don't know how the audience would have reacted because there was quite an age difference. But um, but there was obviously something going on. I mean, Rachel's terrific; she's a great actor. And uh, you, you finally and did find been... find love, didn't you? But uh, that was with Deborah Lawrence's character, and then she was, uh, from memory, she was killed. <laughs> or, she was or... raped and murdered by the the local crime family, the patriarch of which was Danny Adcock, who's a fantastic actor. And uh, he went on to do oh, that show about the family. What, uh, oh, I can't remember. It was a wonderful comedy show that was usually set in the backyard. And uh, that other really nice comic actor... Uh, uh, my short-term memory is shot to pieces. I'm all right with uh, stuff that happened a hundred years ago, but um, no, I, yeah, my... I'm trying to think for you. But it could be "Pack to the Rafters," always greener. Um, but backyard, I can't... no, it was uh, it was named after the family, and uh, uh, what's his name, Gil Shannon. Uh, Darren Gilsonen was in it uh, as uh, one of, as one of the uncles, and uh, Danny Adcock was the patriarch, and Rachel was part of the family, and uh, it was very funny. But I can't remember the name of it. It's ridiculous. Oh, that's right. But Darren Gilsonen, Darren Gilsonen was the uh, person I was trying to think of. Um, the other one I want to ask about, uh, William McGuinness, who played Nick Schultz on Blue Hitlers. I ask about him because there's, there's some interesting stories in the book about, I guess, how he treated others or how he treated them. It's, it was a bit... Uh... He's, uh, you know, William is a fantastic actor and probably has more talent in his little finger than most of the rest of us have in our whole bodies. And... Um, He's enormously, he's enormously clever at um, uh, imitating voices. I mean, he can do anybody's voice. And, uh, I mean, he could ring you, you know, and you would think you were talking to him, to me, you know. Um, I, I, somebody, a, a radio announcer I was talking to the other day, got a phone call from somebody, and this somebody claimed to be high up in the uh, ABC and uh, um, and then started abusing the uh, announcer for for his behaviour in the studio. You know, it was uh, outrageous that this man would uh, undress in the studio and masturbate while he was on mic. And, uh, and of course, it was William and the whole thing. <laughs> and, you know, William did that all the time. I used to... With him, I, you know, like I used to get the train and the tram down to Channel 7 and he'd get on the tram and he'd have a beanie pulled down over his face and specks and nobody knew who he was and he'd be going, look, that's John Wood, John Wood, up there, John Wood. And then he'd come up and grab me. <laughs> Everybody was, you know, would, you know, he would just do it all the time. It was absolutely incorrigible, but... Uh, he was, as I said, he was so talented, you know, amazingly so. Uh, one of the things that I found funny uh, just reading is that he actually guested on Rafferty's Rules and you don't even remember. Is that right? No, I don't. No, <laughs> I don't remember. Um, and apparently Russell Crowe did too, and I don't remember Russell being on the show either. But in my defence, you know, 
doing Rafferty's rules was incredibly hard work, you know. Like, I, I never had a script out of my hand for four years, you know. Like, everywhere I went, I had a script in my hand, eating breakfast on the toilet, out to dinner. And I just had reams of pages that I was, of, you know, legal dialogue and that I had to learn and... Uh, you know, so it was uh, it was hard to remember anything apart from getting up and going to work. Yeah. But um, just so I don't get um, before we move on to the last person I want to ask about, so I don't get heaps of emails. Someone's going to be uh, shouting at uh, this podcast about the show that uh, we're not thinking about. Is it the Moody's that you were with Darren? Darren in it? With who? With uh, the other conversation we're having about Darren Gil- Gilshin. Um, no, I've never worked with Darren. Um, we were, talk- we were uh, talking before, you know, you couldn't think of the show that he was in. Oh, in. yeah, yeah. Was it, was it the Moody's? No, no, it was a TV series. Yeah, that was a TV series. I think it was on the ABC. Police Rescue? Yeah. No? No, no. I was just... I, I just the, name looked... of the, fa- the family's name. Oh, yeah, well, the Moody's was a, was a family, the family name. I was just looking up his, um, his, old, his shows there and I, I saw... Police Rescue, A Country Practice. Oh, it was The Moody's. Yeah, I yeah thought, The Moody's. Sorry, I thought you said, yeah, The Moody's. Yeah, I thought you said movies. Oh, yeah, no, The Moody's. As in films. No, 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 no. It was a TV series called The Moody's, yes. Yeah. And he was very funny in it. And uh, Danny Adcock was uh, terrific. And as I say, he's a terrific actor, Danny. And, uh, you know, has been for years. I've sort of followed him on and off and worked with him on and off for years and think he's terrific. I just, yeah. I just wanted to throw that in. I, was, I know I was going to get emails from people yelling out, it's the Moody's, it's the Moody's. But uh, the last one I wanted yeah. to ask you about um, was Cornelia Francis. Um, you know, for those of you playing at home again, that's Morag from Home and Away and, and host of The Wicked Slink and very sadly missed. And I'm just wondering, I guess, your thoughts on Cornelia because you worked with her. Well, I was, um, you know, like we spent... Most of the time that I knew Cornelia, we worked We worked together, of course, on Catwalk. And uh, she was tall and leggy and uh, she played the model and I spent all my time pretending to photograph her. Um, but, you know, like she, uh, she went on to bigger and better things. Yeah. There was a, a show she had where, oh, God, and she had a catchphrase, you know, I can't the the weakest link but... when she hosted the game show. Yeah, you are the weakest you know, link. Goodbye. Would tell them you're, you know, you're out of here, whatever it was. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, you're sorry. I no, sorry. I I hardly saw Cornelia after Catwalk. You know, like I rarely saw her. Ever again, I um, I did see her on the weakest link a couple of times, but um, yeah, uh, we we were never in the same room together, except for once at the Logies, I think. And uh, you know, I, I I honestly didn't know her that well. Yeah, I don't know who she was married to. She was married to, and I know she had a child because she, uh, well, you know. This is a terrible thing to say, but it's true. She had it induced mm. so that she could do catwalk. Oh. Wow. Um, so, you know, like... There you go. And I don't mean to denigrate her, but I found that a bit of a shock, having just had a baby of our own. I, I thought, gosh, I wouldn't do that to uh, get into a TV show. But uh, oh. but beyond that, I had not nothing to do with her. I just want to ask you, um, for some reason, I love sliding doors type stories where you end up finding out that someone else was cast in the lead for a show and then for whatever reason they pulled out and so on and then someone else went on to do that show successfully and then the audience wonders how the show would have ever worked without that person. Like, for example, John Travolta was actually given the role of Forrest Gump initially, but it ended up with Tom Hanks and now we can't imagine the role without him. Now, you were actually offered the magistrate role in Rafferty's Rules and then turned it down because you were not available and then uh, ended up, they ended up doing the pilot without you. So what happened there? 
Well, I was um, I was reapproached after I, I was doing the last bastion. I, uh, you know, I just signed on to do the last bastion, playing Menzies in a show about the fall of Singapore, and uh, you know, once you accept a job. Uh, then, you know, you're contracted to do it. So you do it to the best of your ability. You can't just suddenly say, look, I've been offered a better job. Uh, find someone else. Uh, <laughs> and I was offered uh, Rafferty and I couldn't do it. Mm. Uh, you know, I couldn't do it because I was already contracted to do uh, this thing called The Last Bastion, which uh, was written by David Williamson and his wife. And... Uh, Someone named Dennis. Oh God, it's gone again. Um, but but you know, it was Menzies was a great role. I mean, it wasn't the the leading role in the series, but it was a terrific role in amongst a whole heap of other people. You know, Timothy West and Warren Mitchell and Michael Blakemore, Robert Vaughan. You know, so I. It's a, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine Rafferty's rules without you because it was very possible that if it had have gone at the time, the initial time, we would have had Rafferty's rules with uh, was it Chris Chris Haywood? Chris Haywood, yeah. That yeah. Have, if, if it's hard, hard to think well, about. Was, well, it is, and it's um, you know, like Mark Little played the Fulvio character. Mm. I don't know if he was still called Fulvio, but he um. Mark went on to become a very famous radio announcer in in London, I think. Mm. But uh, Chris and Chris, of course, has played every you know major roles as an Australian in just about every film that's ever been made here. <laughs> despite the fact that he arrived in Australia in uh, you know I first met him the night he arrived, he came to see Death of a Salesman at. Um, the old tote, and that's when I met him. And uh, he was a really interesting guy in a red velvet suit. Mm. Who, before you know, within ten minutes of meeting him, he'd borrowed my MG. And you know, <laughs> so, you know, Chris was uh, uh, amazing, an amazing person. I, I haven't seen him for a while, but uh, he came and lived with us in Melbourne for. Well, when I first came back to Melbourne to work for the Melbourne Theatre Company, and Chris came to stay for a couple of weeks and ended up with us for nine months, I think. Mm. But, um, yes, it would have been a very different proposition. And uh, I think uh, Catherine Wilkin and Simon Chilvers were in that show. They were in that uh, first pilot. Yeah. But Chris wasn't available when when it came to be remade, and... I just happened to be, and, uh, you know, as I say, as I often say, you know, I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time mm -hmm. on a numerous occasions, numerous occasions during my career. I can't believe how lucky I was, but, uh, yeah. yeah, so we got the role, I got the role and we did it and it was a huge success and, uh, the rest was and history. everybody, of course, loved Archie, and uh, and the show was, in fact, quite groundbreaking. I thought, you know, um, it was beautifully written, and the characters, the four main characters, myself, Fulvio, Sergeant Flicker, and Pauline Gray, yeah. were all played by people who were essentially theatre actors, and most actors are essentially theatre actors, but we were doing something, you know, we were doing something on stage for the virtually the first time, uh, on television virtually for the first time, and uh, our performances were probably quite theatrical, and uh, and they were probably bigger than most performances on television at the time, and uh, and I think it worked extremely well, but it's you know, I think that that's probably my big problem. One of the reasons I haven't done anything much in films is that I'm too big a ham. You know, <laughs> that I'm too big. My uh, my um, performances are too large. And you, you've got to remember, and I never do, 
that, you know, if you're in a movie and you raise your eyebrow, it's something, your eyebrow is probably about 20 feet across. <laughs> and just the smallest movement of your eyebrow is huge on screen. Yeah. And it's why people don't actually exercise their face much in movies. You know, all the, all the great American stars were almost immobile, mm. Humphrey and William Holden and people like that barely moved their face at all. But uh, well, yeah, that's anyway, an interesting field uh, tidbits there. Um, in a different direction, there's part of the book um, in which you show a disdain, I guess, for David Lecky, who was the CEO of Seven Media Group. I mean, if you want to tell that story, that's fine. But but more holistically, you don't say it outright in the book, but you seem to be a big fan of cast and crews. Oh, and shows you've worked with, but never for the network executives. What, what is it that frustrates you about the executives? Oh, look, I I, um, I don't particularly want to talk about it, because the, um, you know, like, they're all, they're all fighting for their lives all the time, you know. Mm. Um, you know, as an actor, you're only as good as your last job. Yeah. And so you try and do the best you can in the hope that somebody will see it and say, oh, that was great, and give you another job. Well, the same thing applies to TV executives. They're all on a, a ladder, and some of them get to the top, and some of them get to the middle, and some of them only get to the first rung, and uh, something goes wrong, and they get tipped out. And uh, it happens all the time. And I, I found very often working on in the industry, the, the person who knows least about the program is the, is the executive in charge of it, you know. Yeah. And uh, I felt that, you know, on many occasions. But, uh, but I was very lucky on Blue Healers to have people in control of that who were very good at their job. And... and uh, I, I think I just said Blue Healers. I meant to say Rafferty's Rules, but yeah. uh, but the same goes for Blue Healers. Blue Healers was beautifully looked after by by the series of producers that worked on it. Us, Howard, Bob Bruning, and Rick Pelizzieri, yeah. as well as the script department. You know, like it was, uh, you know, and they they really knew what they were doing, but. Uh, Above them, you know, there are other people who are very wary that their jobs might be in danger, so they they put obstacles in the way. And then, you know, the ABC years ago, I remember there was huge uh, animosity and competition between the Melbourne drama department and the ABC and the Sydney. ABC drama department. Mm. They were they were very competitive, and uh, and I remember once that we did a show in Melbourne that originated in Sydney, but none of the Sydney ABC wanted to touch it because they didn't think they could make it work, and they they would look like idiots, and uh, so they foisted it onto the Melbourne ABC, and and Melbourne didn't want to do it either, but they were forced to, and. Uh, Anyway, it, it worked. It worked better than anybody thought it would. And, uh, mm. well, well, yeah, but, you know, but... Uh, so, sort yeah, of, sorry. Yeah, as I was going to say, sort of on the, on the same subject. There's a different direction, though. I wanted to ask you about your experience on Dancing with the Stars. Now, you were actually on the very first Australian season, and I think you mentioned in your book, because we're talking about executives there, that they left before the show even finished with them saying, this won't work. Um and you were also on the season that had Pauline Hanson and and also the return of Daryl Summers uh, to television, where some say he's difficult to work with, some say they don't. So that must have been a big experience. As I said, it was the very first Dancing with the Stars with the executives all on their toes and Pauline Hanson was there. Yeah. yeah well, you know, I'm, I'm sure Pauline's in our series. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, I, uh, I had, uh, you know, I had huge reservations about her politics. Um, and I met her, and I, she's perfectly pleasant, you know. She was a very pleasant woman but and reminded me very much of 
my mother, really. My mother and people of her generation, she mm. was she was just very much a, an ordinary suburban housewife. Mm. And uh, I had no problem with it. She was perfectly pleasant. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, um, yeah. Uh, so the other reality show that you did was The Full Monty for Seven. Um, how was that? Because that's surely something completely different and you I mean although I must say you, you've had, had had nudity in some of your um plays haven't you uh, yeah yeah mm. but um you know when you're doing a play you're not yourself you're a different character and uh, the nudity sort of you know you don't think about it too well you know it it, uh, it is it does affect you but um yeah the full monty was um I was, I was, you know, I was quite shocked, I guess, because I, I felt like I was back at school amongst, you know, the, 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 the schoolboys, the footy jocks, the, you know, the, yeah. the, and so I, I, I was a bit uncomfortable about it, despite the fact that I really, I'd always been a huge fan of Dippers, and, uh, <laughs> and I, you know, like I knew nothing about Brendan Favola except what I'd read in the papers, and. Uh, He's a hell of a nice guy. He's yeah. terrific. And, uh, but, you know, nevertheless, I felt slightly uncomfortable in their presence. And, uh, but, you know, they were, they were, but they were, you know, they, you know, for all the bravado and uh, bullshit, they were just as nervous about getting undressed as I was, you know. <laughs> so, um you know, it it was an interesting experience. I mean, I remember getting the phone call. My agent said, oh, Seven have rung and they want you to do the full Monty. And I said, you're joking. <laughs> they said, oh, I'll not pay you X amount of money. I said, you're joking. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the money was too good to knock back. Mm. And, uh, and it was also for a good cause. Yeah, so definitely. in the end, I, you know, I was quite happy to do it. Well, let me ask you about the, the, I guess, a big moment in your life, the gold logie. You were you were nominated nine times before winning. Uh, most people forget that you actually won two outstanding lead actor awards uh, in the late eighties for um, yeah. Power Without Honor. Oh, no, um, no, that was the seventies. Eighties would have been Rafferty's Rules that you won for that. Well, that's right. Well, yeah, was I it... won two years in a row. I won most outstanding actor award in eighty eight and eighty nine for Rafferty. I, I just and, wonder, uh, that, was the public more invested in getting you over the line for the gold than you were in actually winning it, or did you really want to have that one under your belt? I, no, it didn't bother me one way or the other, to be honest, and uh, and I am being honest, you know. Like, I, I didn't think it was a particularly valuable award, you know. Like, the most outstanding actor awards were voted for by my peers, Whereas the gold logie was voted for by readers of TV Week, and you know, I met a kid, you know, who was about fourteen. He said, "Oh, I, I voted for you fifty-four times." <laughs> I said, oh, thanks. And he said, "I voted for Lisa McCune sixty-three times." And I thought, you know, uh, you know, so uh, you know, I'm grateful to him, but it just doesn't seem to. It doesn't give the award any particular kudos to mm. to know that t- teenagers are voting multiple times for you. And uh, he was probably doing a lot of cutting out then, because was that in the times where you had to cut out the coupons and TV week? Because it would have been before the, in- the internet, or maybe you could actually ring the phone number. <laughs> oh well, it was uh, no, it was in the cutting out the coupons. I think. Wow, he he was very invested in that then. Wow. But uh, yeah. Anyway, we we're getting uh, to a close for the podcast. Um, so just the last couple of questions. Um, every show in America is being rebooted. Um, it, it, even in Australia, they're bringing back Pack to the Rafters, which is going to be called Back to the Rafters, and McLeod's Daughters. I think they're doing a a movie. Has there ever been a whisper of doing Blue Healers again, even for a limited run? Uh, no, no, I heard of anything and uh, I noticed in the the age television paper last week that um, 
that both Blue Heelers and Rafferty's Rules are among shows that people think should be, you know, remounted, which, you know, that would be great. But uh, I wouldn't be in either of them, I don't think. I mean, I'd be in them if I was asked, but um, I was too old to be a police sergeant when uh, Blue Heelers finished, and that's been finished for 15 years nearly now. So I... um, Mm. I'd be far too old to be a policeman. I'd have to be married to Chris Riley and be the publican or something. But um, mm. And Rafferty's <laughs> rules, I think, at my age, I'm probably too old to be a magistrate. You know, mm. I, so but I, don't, I don't know. But um, It would be, it would be nice. Oh, look, it would be, uh, you know, look, it would be wonderful to revisit those characters as older men, but, um, yeah, anyway, who knows? Of course you've um, written the book, uh, How I Call My Way to the Middle, but in it you say, I haven't found the writing of this book enjoyable um, towards the end. Well, of course, I enjoyed reading it and would certainly recommend it. And and also I just want to say to people that are into cars and not just um, theatre, there's a lot of car references in there, Um, is it... Was it the writing itself or writing during a pandemic or having to try and recollect every small detail of your life that wasn't the greatest part? The thing that um, I just got, I kept getting bored with the subject of myself. <laughs> you know, even you know, we've been talking, I don't know how long we've been talking now. <laughs> you know, I hope I haven't been too too tedious because I... I find myself a bit tedious and long-winded, but um, I, I, I didn't much enjoy the process. But one of the I did notice, as I, I think I said earlier, um, I, as an actor, try to be in the moment, you know, in the moment that you're actually filming or the moment that you're actually performing, um, in the life of the character and. Uh, doing a book, I think I approached it the same way, you know, so I would you know, when I was thinking about my childhood I would uh, I would actually, you know, find myself back there, really living it and uh, but, you know, I I I kept, as I say, getting bored and I, I, I find I, you know, like I'm as ordinary as anybody that's listening to this, you know, I don't feel any better or any different or that my life is very much different to theirs, you know, like we all live very similar lives in Australia and, uh, and you know, look, I'm happy to have been fairly successful at what I've done and uh, I've enjoyed most of my career and and I, you know, I enjoy the fact that the book's there, and uh, that people who've read it seem to like it a lot. So, mm. well, you know, well, it's very satisfying. Let me ask you a final question. In a perfect world, you are offered a three-year contract in acting, in whatever capacity that would be. So, what would what would we be seeing you in? What would uh, what? Sorry, what would I? So, so if, if you got a three-year contract in, in acting to do whatever you wanted, it was a, a film, a, a, a theatre, a um, TV show, um, and you could choose what it would be. What would we be seeing you in? Would it be another TV show, a theatre, a favourite character? You had a a role that you well, could choose. Well, there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of theatre stuff that I've never done. Um, that I would really love to have a crack at, uh, some Strindberg things and uh, some Chekhov stuff like Uncle Vanya, yeah. um, either playing Vanya or Astrov, it wouldn't matter. You know, there, there are those things. A Dance of Death, I think, is a terrific play that I would... But I don't know whether I've got the stamina to do it anymore. Um, mm. I certainly have no desire to play King Lear. If I... And of course, on television, you know, like I, I would, I'm sort of toying with a, a, a an idea for a series about uh, old actors in a, a retirement village. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, so I certainly wouldn't try and play under my age, you know. I'm genuinely 74, and that's genuinely how I would see myself being on telly. But, uh, there you go. We'd love to see that. You know. Very interesting. Ricky, yeah, Ricky well, Gervais did a, a series in a, in a, in a, like it was at a nursing home, and that, that was uh, very funny and stuff. So always some good stories in a nursing home, a lot of life experiences that people have. And they're usually very yes, well, I've got a, yeah, I've been, uh, I've been working on some um, some ideas with a, an old friend of named Lyndon Wilkinson who uh, did a series with me back in the, uh, after Rafferty's finished, called Dearest Enemy. And, uh, and we've been kicking this idea around and we've got some good ideas for the first couple of episodes. And, uh, you know, so hopefully... We'll uh, go on, and hopefully somebody will uh, have an interest in it. But uh, yeah, we'll see. Oh, well, John Wood, I know you uh, said in the book, as I mentioned, that you're an uninteresting, an old fart, an old ham, cannot write, cannot act, um, cannot direct, and know nothing about acting. But my nana always told me that actions speak louder than words, and your actions and performances in both the theatre and television have been adored by the Australian public. The audience has decided. <laughs> That, ooh, sorry, that, that, that they absolutely love you. Um, your believable and engaging performances will live in the hearts of many for a long time. So I believe I have the, the right to say that, you know, I hope that after COVID-19 uh, passes, there's still more to come. But thank you for all the work that you've done. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to doing my next gig. Awesome. Uh, thank you, John Wood. His memoir is called How I Called My Way to the Middle, which is out now in books, book form or audible. Uh, John, very forthright and gracious with his time today. Well, that is episode two of the TV Black Box one-on-one podcast, done and dusted. Thank you for listening and goodbye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.